Amen, amen. Well, I want to say a good morning to you on this rainy Sunday morning. It's good to worship with you here today. Uh, If you're joining us here for the first time, a special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here. My name is Dan Min, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor here at ACF. And uh, on behalf of our church family to you, we just want to say thanks for being here. Thanks for worshiping with us. We consider it a joy and an honor. Um, this, uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be diving into a super fun subject together. Uh, we're going to be talking about sin. Let's talk about sin, baby. Let's talk, all right, let's, let's talk about sin a little bit here. And, and let's, I, I want to unpack this a little bit. Now, we're going to have some fun with this, we're, but, but, you know, we're not going to make light of the issue. Uh, but I do think that God has a word for us here this morning uh, when it comes to the subject of sin. We've been in the series called Essentials, where we've been looking at ancient doctrines, ancient beliefs for today, and we've been exploring these different doctrines. Thus far, we've examined the doctrine of God. We kicked off the series talking about the doctrine. What do we believe about God? Last week, we unpacked the doctrine of Scripture. What do we believe about Scripture? What do we believe about uh, the Bible? What do we believe about God's Word? And today, we come to the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Now here's why it's important that we stop and pause to talk about the doctrine of sin. It was a part of me that felt like, you know what, it'd be a lot easier to just jump to the doctrine of Jesus. But how many of you know Jesus won't really make sense to you if you don't understand why Jesus came in the first place? The doctrine of, of Jesus and, and, and the things, the belief systems that we have around Jesus would really not hold weight if we don't take a moment to pause and talk about the doctrine of sin. You see, as followers of Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but we believe that our very nature, we are by very nature people of good news. That's what the New Testament identifies us as, that Jesus came to preach Good news, the, 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 the word, the, the Greek word that we have there in the New Testament is euangelion, euangelion, say that with me just because it's fun, euangelion, right, euangelion, which is the Greek word that translates to our English word that we have today as gospel, euangelion is where we get the word gospel from, the word gospel also means good news, but how many of you know in order, to, in order for there to be good news, there's got to be what? Bad news. Without bad news, good news is just news. It's just, it's just, it's there, but, but it's not really good or bad. It's just news. In other words, to truly understand the beauty of the, beauty of the gospel, we need to understand the tragedy of sin. Let me put it this way. Um, let's say you were terminally ill, and you only had two months to live. Okay. Some of you are like, well, this got dark real quick. Just go with me here for a minute, okay? Let's just say you were terminally ill with, this, uh, with some unknown disease, and you only had two months to live. But now here's the kicker. You didn't know you only had two months to live. You have absolutely no idea that this is your current status, this is your current situation, but now I do. Furthermore, I happen to have in my possession the cure for your illness. And so what do I do? I have this medicine that will make you whole and bring healing to your body and restore your body. And so I come to you and I say, friend, take this. This will heal you. This will buy you a whole lifetime. This will cure your disease. What am I doing? 
I'm bringing to you euangelion. I'm bringing good news to you. I've got good news, friends. Here, take this, but you refuse the medicine. You deny my offer. Why? Because you're not aware that you're on your way to living your last two months of life here on earth. I bet you if you knew that, you would receive that good news in a heartbeat. You would receive good news because you know just how bad your bad news is. You see, in order to fully embrace the good news of Jesus, we need to take a pause and be made aware of the bad news of sin because sin is the cancer of our souls that is decaying within us and that is causing harm all around us. And so we need to take a moment and pause and talk about sin and find it appropriate that on this day, September 11th, 20 plus years ago, sin reared its ugly head. I mean, you, 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 take a, you take a moment and pause and wonder, like, what in the world is going on with our world? Not just on that tragic day, but, but every day subsequent to that, after that, you look at all these tragedies that are happening in this world, and you say, what is happening here? It's sin in play in real time. And so I want to take a moment and, and pause and to talk about the doctrine of sin here this morning. And here's how I want to talk about this. I want to talk to you about three different types of people. Now, there's clearly more than three types that we can discuss. But for the sake of our time here this morning, we're just going to focus on these three types of people uh, that, that come, uh, that when I think about the doctrine of sin, these three types of people, I've seen them, I've seen it in me, I've seen it in others come up time and time again. These are three types of people um, and, and their belief system around the subject of sin. In fact, if you were to draw a scale, uh, you can plop them along various points on this scale based on their doctrine around sin, based on what they believe about sin. And so we'll start with this first one on one end of the spectrum and we'll call this person the optimist. We're going to call this person the optimist. The optimist says, we are all generally good people. You, you know people like that? You know, like they're, they're, they're the, the, the ones who say, you know, they, they, without saying it, their starting point, their belief system in terms of their starting point is, sin is really not a thing. We don't, we don't need to really worry about sin. You know, where people aren't really sinners, that's how religious people talk. That's how church people talk. But, 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 but us in the real world here, like, we don't really believe that people are sinners. People are generally good. The optimist believes that people are born with an intrinsic nature towards goodness and righteousness. After all, how in the world can you look at a newborn baby and call that baby a wretched sinner, right? Like, it just seems cruel and unusual, right? I, I mean, imagine going to a gender reveal party and the balloon pops, out comes a confetti. The awaiting parents are just, what is it? It's a sinner, right? Like, I mean, no one says that. Imagine receiving that kind of news as a, a, uh, an anticipating parent. But I got to tell you, as a parent myself, it doesn't take very long, it doesn't take very long for that beautiful newborn creation to rear its ugly head into a sinner. It doesn't take very long. In fact, one of the first words that a child learns is what? Almost intrinsically, it's the word mine. Mine. I'm happy to say that the first word my son Jake learned was meatball. 
I'm, I'm proud. And then he immediately said, mine. You know, I did, he, no, he, he's, he, he, uh, really, he did say the word meatball as far as I'm concerned. So I, I, was, I was a proud father. But it didn't take very long after that to, for him to learn the word mine, mine. Now that, that, that version of that word takes different shape and form as you grow older. You see, there's something woven into our DNA that seeks after self-fulfillment. We don't need to be taught how to be selfish. You just know how to be selfish. I know how to be selfish. You don't need to be taught how to indulge your self-based needs and desires. You just know how to do that. In fact, pastor and author Rich Velotis in his latest book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, he writes this about sin. He says this, Sin is not just something we do, but a power we fall under. A power that curves us into ourselves until we become stuck there. It causes us to desire an illusion, to center the world on our comfort, security, fear, desire, and personal perspective. Sin curves us inward. That's what sin does. It curves us inward whereby leaving little room for God or anyone else. Now, friends, hear me. You don't have to be taught how to do that. And you don't have to be very old in age to know what that's all about. And that's because we are born from the very beginning as imperfect, broken, sinful people. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We just read that again. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, does Paul know something here that we don't know? Right, like, does he have some inside information on people's sin patterns or, or, or to be able to make this sort of blanket universal statement? Like, how in the world can he say, all have sinned? Right, like, how, how does he, he doesn't know my story. He doesn't know my business. He doesn't know, you know, like, he, he doesn't have access to my life. And so how in the world can he say sort of this, this universal blanket statement, death has come to all because all have sinned. Just a few chapters before, in chapter 3, he says, All have sinned again, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. This, again, this, what does Paul know that we don't? You see, Paul, it's not that he has inside information into your life or my life or anyone's life in this time. See, what Paul is doing here is he's making a theological statement. He's saying sin is not just something we do outwardly, but it's something that is broken in all of us internally. Sin is not just something we do outwardly, but it is something that is broken inside of all of us internally. Sin is not just bad deeds. It's the very flawed nature of our hearts. And so Paul doesn't need to know your dirty laundry. He doesn't need to know the skeletons in your closet. He doesn't know what you did last night or the week before. He doesn't need to know all of that. If you're a human being, and you got breath in your lungs, I've got news for you. You were born into this world with a sin nature, with a broken, flawed sin nature. Jeremiah wasn't wrong when he said about this about the human heart. In Jeremiah, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
And so the scripture seems to hold a perspective that people are not generally good. I mean, I mean people, people might have occasional good moments in life. They might do good deeds every once in a while. But even those good moments can never wash away the filth and the stain of sin. We are born into this world as sinners, not good people. I just want you to sit with that reality for a moment. We're going to get to some good news here in just a minute, but just sit in that reality for a moment. Now, if you continue to move along that scale, we come to the justifier. We're going to call this person the justifier. The justifier says, oh, this sin isn't so bad. This sin isn't so bad. You see, the, the justifier doesn't neglect the reality of sin, right? They're not under any illusion that people are born good and righteous. They readily admit, they acknowledge, okay, people are screwed up. I don't even need to have a faith background to know that. Like, people are messed up. They acknowledge that we are all marred by sin. It's just that they believe that certain sins are okay, while others are no, no. That's not okay. Right, like they, they, some sins are okay and others are just flat out wrong. For example, a justifier might say murdering someone is clearly wrong. That's not okay. But lying, well, that's not terrible. I mean, like in a given day, I, I probably lie a couple dozen times. You know, like that's not really sin, right? That's like everyone lies. It's like that children's book. Everyone poops. Like everyone lies. Like what's the big deal here? But, but, but that reasoning is a terrible justification. The reasoning that everyone does it Therefore, that must make it okay. Again, if we're working off of the assumption that people are generally sinful people, driven by their own selfish motives and curved inward towards themselves, why in the world would you want to take your cues from everyone else? Jesus himself even referred to this dumb logic in the, in the, in the Gospels, and he's like, listen, guys, there are two gates, okay? Listen, you're right. there's a wide gate, with a wide road, okay? And it's easy. It's an easy road. It's an easy gate to find. But you know what? At the end of the day, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. And guess what? Many find it. A lot of people. You find yourself on the wide gate, your, your companions are going to be many. But the narrow gate, there's a second gate. There's a second road. It's narrow. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow road. But it leads to life. And that, now here's the kicker. You're not going to find many people on that road. You're not going to find many people on headed towards that gate. Those who find it are few. Moral of the story, don't do what everyone is doing because everyone's an idiot. Okay? I mean, those are my words, not the Lord's. Okay? That, that's, that's what he, you know, it's, it's almost like this, this is easy and people are going to find it. it. Like, so this logic, this justification, well, everyone does it, therefore it must make it okay. Now, I realize... For those of us who grew up uh, hearing that, that phrase, if everyone is jumping off a cliff, you know, like even take that step one step further. Like, and, and look at what Jesus is saying. It is part of our human nature to believe. There's something in us, something, you know, our, psychological student, our psychology students can probably, um, there's, there's probably a, a term that's coined for this, but like this, this understanding that, well, because everyone, because the masses check off on it, that must make it Okay. That reasoning never led to anything good, ever. Not in my life, 
not in anyone else's life that I've walked with. You want to know another justification logic that's flawed? A, just, a justifier will not only try to justify their sin by normalizing it according to the masses, but they'll also try to justify it on technicality. I wonder if you've been there. They'll say, well, it's not technically sin. It's not, like, like the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid it. Therefore, it must be okay. It must be permissible. God must permit this. But let me remind us of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, all things are lawful for me. All things are permissible for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, just because the Bible is silent on certain matters does not give us the liberty to determine the moral substance of those matters. There are certain things that the Bible will not explicitly forbid, but if you have an understanding of Scripture, if you have a proper understanding of the heart of God, in other words, if you have a proper doctrine of Scripture and a proper doctrine of God, you'll arrive at the same kind of conclusion that the Apostle Paul arrived at, and that is everything is permissible. Yeah, sure, you can do it, but not everything is beneficial or helpful. By the way, this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20, would be a great passage to read for any college student, particularly for those of us who are wrestling through sexual temptations. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul unpacks this whole section in a really helpful way in verses 12 through 20, because you want to know something? I often hear college students in my time, as, I, as I've counseled with many of them, and, and even for myself, I've found myself in this position time and time again, asking questions like, so how far can I go? Like, what is the, where is the line that the Bible draws? Right? Like, how far can I go? Like, what is really permissible in the eyes of God? I mean, my girlfriend and I, we, we didn't go all the way, you know, but like, you know, just, just tell me, like, what can we do? You know, my boyfriend and I are just messing around a little bit here and there, and I mean, it's not, it's not technically sin, and so like, talk to me, pastor, like, like, where do we round the bases here? Like, what is okay in the eyes of God? Like, what's, what's okay? How far can I go? Now, those are the kinds of questions that a justifier would ask. They're trying to get away with sin on a technicality, right? But in the New Testament, I want you to hear this, Jesus doesn't let us get away on technicalities. He doesn't, and, uh, and it bothers me. It, it, it bothers me to the core because in Matthew chapter 5, he says to the crowds, okay, listen, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, for it is a sin. To which I can imagine the crowds were like, yep, check, done that, not a problem for me, Jesus. I, I, I've never committed adultery in my life, but then Jesus goes on and he says, but I say to you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their hearts, to which the crowd is probably like, okay, we're, we're just, just bring that back a little bit. Say that again? Well, I, I haven't committed adultery, but now you're saying I have if I looked at a woman lustfully. Because you see, again, for Jesus, the issue of sin was never about how far can I go, but for Jesus, it was always about how pure can I remain. It was never about how far can I go, how far can I, how far can I push this issue, how far can I go with this person or that person. The issue for Jesus was always about how pure can my heart be. You see, when you're preoccupied with chasing after God with a pure heart and a pure mind, you're not asking questions like how far can I push the envelope? 
Rather, you're listening to passages like 2 Timothy 2 where Paul says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So you're not saying, how far can I go justifying my sinful life? You're saying, how far can I flee? Not how far can I push this issue, but how far can I run from this life of sin and pursue God with a pure and holy heart? You see, those two starting points are vastly different starting points. That's a little glimpse of how the justifiers see sin in their lives. They try to rationalize by saying, this sin isn't so bad. This sin isn't really sin. I want to move to this last one. And we're going to call this person the defeated. On the other end of the spectrum, we find the defeated person who says, I will never get freed from this sin. The defeated person feels, well, defeated. They they feel defeated by sin. Like sin is their master and it's overtaken them and it rules their life. You see, their issue isn't the denial of sin. It's not the compromise of sin. For them, it's the power of sin in their lives. See, the, the, the optimist struggles with the issue of the denial of sin. The justifier wrestles with the issue of, of, of the rationalization or the compromise of sin. For the defeated person, their issue lies in the power of sin. They feel powerless against the sinful habits and patterns and the sinful nature that so pervades their hearts. So much to the point where they may come to the conclusion, I will never get freed from this sin. I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you're wrestling with the brokenness of your sinful nature. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it just seems like you can't break free from the grip of sin in your life. Now, again, let me remind you, sin isn't just wrongful deeds or immoral actions. It's the very broken nature of our humanity. And so your worry and anxiety that courses through your body and through your veins week in and week out, guess what? That's a byproduct of sin. The the self-doubt that you feel Some of us question ourselves on a regular basis. Some of us question ourselves so deeply that the conclusion that we arrive to is, I hate myself. That self-doubt and self-hatred that runs deep in your core, well, guess what? That's a byproduct of sin. Your perpetual striving for greatness, for meaning, self-promotion, self-validation, all of that. It's a byproduct of sin. Now, now, listen, I, w- I don't want you to mishear what I'm saying. No one would come to you and say, stop being anxious, you're sinning. That would seem cruel. Stop being depressed. Get yourself out of it. Stop sinning. That would be cruel. I don't think that's the heart of God. I'm not, that's not what this message is. Again, sin is not just immoral, wrongful deeds. It is the very substance of what is broken and fractured and flawed in every single one of us. Genesis 3, post-Genesis 3, is a life of sin. Pre-Genesis 3 was paradise. There was no flaws. There was no, it was just 
perfection. It was walking in the cool of the day with the Father. It was was perfect union with God. And so no one would come to you and say, stop sinning. But this is all part of what it means to understand, to have a holistic doctrine of sin. For many of us who grew up in the church, sin has been boiled down to immoral acts and immoral deeds and wrongful acts that upset the heart of God. No, 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 no. It's not just that. I'm all about holiness. I'm all about a holy living. Yes. But I'm also about a God who has come to restore the broken and fractured places of our lives where sin has pervaded all of humanity. And so every single part where we feel and sense the brokenness of our humanity, that is a byproduct of sin. I imagine that's a little bit of what Paul was getting at in Romans 7 where he talks about the struggle of his flesh and the struggle of his heart. We won't read the whole passage here, but look at this part in Romans 7 with me. I wonder if you can relate. Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here's where this defeated mentality comes into play. Paul says in verse 24, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I will never get freed from this sin. Friends, as we look at these three types of people, the optimist, the justifier, the defeated, there are actually flaws embedded in all of their views. There are flaws that are actually woven into their belief system around sin. And the only way to course correct their belief system around sin is with the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus. Because again, you'll never appreciate the good news unless you understand the bad news. You see, listen, the bad news for the optimist is that we're actually not generally good people. That's the bad news. We are hopelessly flawed and fractured. We are born into this world as sinners and that is our inescapable reality. But the good news is that scripture tells us, for our sake, for your sake and my sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So yeah, we don't start off as good people, but if you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, we become new creations, whereby God no longer looks at us as hopelessly flawed and sinful, but he now looks at us through the cross of Jesus, through his son Jesus, and he looks at us as righteous, as fully forgiven, as holy and good. Not by any measure of our efforts, but simply because of the cross of Jesus. The bad news for the justifier is that there is no amount of justification on our part that will make our sins okay. There there isn't. There's no amount of justification or explaining that, that will make our sins okay in the eyes of God. Sin is sin. There are no varying degrees of sin. There are varying degrees of the consequences of sin. But in the eyes of God, sin is sin. And no amount of human rationale will make sin okay. 
But God, have you considered this? But God, here's the line, but I haven't crossed that line. But God, have you really thought about this? There's no amount of justification on our part that will make God think, oh, okay, you've convinced me. You know what? I haven't thought about that one. You bring up a good point. There's no amount of human rationale that will make sin okay in the eyes of God. That's the bad news. The good news? The good news for the justifier is that there is a justification that is far better than our human excuses for our sins. It's called the grace of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. You've done nothing to earn this. It is the gift of God Church family, you cannot explain your way out of sin. God, out of his sovereign grace, pulls you out of sin. You can't explain your way out of sin. You can't rationalize your way out of sin. God, God, out of his abundant grace, had to pull you out of sin. And that freedom that comes from God pulling us out of sin is purely a gift from God. And that is our grounds for justification. Not our, not our best efforts to explain our sins away, but that our justification is rooted in what God has done through the grace of God. I want to talk about this last one, the bad news for the defeated, is that sin is indeed powerful. And I don't know about you, but there are some days where it feels like sin is winning. You know, like you, you're, you're sprinting, you're, you're running the race, and it feels like, man, sin is... Sin's got a, a step ahead of me. Feels like sin is winning on some days. And you may be inclined to arrive at the same conclusion that the Apostle Paul did. What a wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, from this life of sin? Paul goes on and he answers his own question in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ our Lord defeated sin and death once and for all he is the victor he is the champion he is our conquering king i love how we sang earlier by the way worship team you guys can come on up i love that we sang the song earlier in the service called mercy the 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 chorus if you remember says now i'm alive to tell the story how i've overcome it's goodness and mercy and the power of the blood i'm so glad that my freedom was a based on what I've done, but the goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. Friends, that is our testimony. That is good news. The euangelion that we bear, that our freedom from sin isn't based on anything that we can do. There's no amount of optimism that will wash away the filth of our sins. There are no, there's no amount of of hermeneutic gymnastics, biblical gymnastics that you can do around scripture to try to justify your sins or rationalize your sins. The truth is sin is a powerful force. Sin is indeed a power to be reckoned with. The good news, we as people of the euangelion is we have a power that is at work in us that is greater than the power of sin. And so For the optimist, there's hope. For the justifier, there's hope. For the defeated, there's a way forward. And it's through the gospel. 
It's through the good news that Jesus offers us where Jesus says, hey, come to me and you'll find freedom from your life of sin. That sin that stains you. That sin that you feel like has a grip on your life. Come to me and you'll find freedom for your soul. I wonder if this morning there's a word that God wants to impart to us. I wonder if there's a work that God wants to do in us. A work of freedom that says, okay, I, I, Lord, I want to I repent of my sinful ways and walk in a new way with you. Friends, you need to understand this. Freedom has been bought for us by the blood of Jesus. Sin has been defeated on the cross. You know what that means for us? That means all we have to do is receive it, believe in it, and walk in it. See, like, again, I, I think what we don't want to do with this message is what a wretched man I am. How do I earn my way back into right standing with God? What do I need to do to wash away my sin? No, you don't need to do anything. What needs to be done has been done. In completion, Jesus said, it is finished. Which means that the blood of Jesus has completely taken care of the filth of sin in our lives. So all we need to do is receive the work of Christ in us and for us. We need to believe in it and we need to walk in it. This series is about doctrines, what we believe, because what we believe matters. And I wonder if the simple next step for us, for some of us, is, oh, Jesus, I'm believing in your finished work for me. I'm done trying to strive. I'm done trying to make efforts to try to clean up my life. I'm just coming to you. I'm going to receive the cleansing work of God in my life. I'm going to believe in it, and I'm going to walk in it. And hopefully what happens is we see a body of believers taking and understanding the, the weight and the tragedy of sin, but oh, we become a people who so appreciate, we marvel at, we stand in awe of the beauty of the gospel. Can I pray for us? Can I pray that God would do that in us here this morning? Holy Spirit of God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Lord, I pray that for those of us who find ourselves maybe somewhere on that spectrum, I pray that you would speak to us and do business with us here this morning. The places where you need to open our eyes to see that, you know what, there is actually a power, a force at work. Sin is at work in all of us, all around us. I think I've sort of tried to turn a blind eye to that and believe the best in people. And Lord, it's not, the, 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 the answer to that, the optimist isn't to become a pessimist. That, that's, that's really not the call. God, I, I don't believe that you're trying to raise up a body of, of pessimists in your kingdom. But I do believe that you're trying to open our eyes to the reality of sin that is at work in us and all around us. Lord, again, I don't know where on that spectrum my brothers and sisters find themselves here this morning, but Lord, would you speak to us? Church family, I just want to give you like 30 seconds here. 
to just come, come before the Father and say, Lord, would you help me? Would you course correct my perspective on this matter of sin? Because I will never fully come to understand the person of Jesus if I don't understand the nature of man. That I, as a man, as a woman, as a human being, as part of mankind, I am flawed, I'm hopelessly fractured and broken and sin-ridden. But I know that there is a power that is made available to me. And today I receive it, I believe in it, and I choose to walk in it. Would you just come before the Father and do business with him?